of the Torah Teachers Roundtable with your host Ray Harrison, Mark Patron, and yours truly, Mark Call, where, as always, we continue to hope that you'll find this program educational and interesting and rewarding, but above all, you'll take that lesson from the Bereans and search out the scriptures for yourself, see if these things be true. All right, good afternoon, folks. Welcome back once again to another edition of the Torah Teachers Roundtable, the Tanakh edition, as a matter of fact. And this is the place where we are working our way through uh, some of the prophets, particularly what have been called the major prophets of late. And uh, this time it's the book of Isaiah. We're about uh, 20 some odd chapters in, and we'll pick it up in chapter 22. Uh, and uh, as uh, as we begin here today, MP has said he had some more comments he wanted to make before we uh, before we start about the middle of the chapter. So let me just turn it over, say good afternoon to Mark, and um, take us where you'd like. How you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, good to see you guys both. And uh, yeah, I was. Uh, I just wasn't able to get to some of the stuff that I had last week, and uh, I was able to finish it. So anyway, here we go. <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm going to start at verse 8, um, uh, and we've, we've read that, so I'm just going to uh, push on. Okay, and here's what, uh, something that comes from Azamra. They say, uh, and he bared the covering of Yehuda. And you looked on that day to the armor of the house of the forest, in verse 8. The covering of Yehuda was the temple, which the people thought would protect them. But Elohim allowed it to be destroyed, because instead of repenting, the people looked to the armor that was stored in the temple treasury, the house of the forest, it says in 1 Kings chapters 10, chapter 10, rather, in verses 16 to 17, putting their faith in arms and armaments as depicted in the coming verses, which uh, describe how the people defiantly fortified the city in preparation for a siege. Okay, now Shlomo had made 200 targets of beaten gold, each having 600 talents of gold. Now, a talent is heavy, okay? <laughs> it was not a small weight, but was roughly, according to the TSK, 114 pounds. Okay, a talent was 114 pounds, 68,400 pounds per target? I seriously doubt it. Anyway, these were not shields that men would carry into battle. Here's what TSK commented on uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 30. If this talent is only seven pounds, as Whiston says, and by the way, uh, 2 Samuel 12 covers the same uh, area of the scripture. Um, if this talent was only seven pounds, as Whiston says, David might have carried it on his head with little difficulty. But this weight, according to common computation, would amount to nearly 114 pounds. Some, therefore, think that mishkale, with weight, okay, or meaning to weigh, uh, should be taken for its value, not weight, which renders it perfectly plain. 
as the worth of a crown will be about 5,074 pounds, 15 shilling, seven, uh, whatever a D stands for, sterling. I'm not sure what that is. The, uh, uh, the ancients mention several other large crowns made more for sight than use. Athenaeus describes the crown of gold that was 24 feet in circumference and mentions others that were two, some four, and others five feet deep. Pliny takes notice to some of these that, uh, that were uh, no less than eight pounds weight. Besides the crown, I mean, actually putting an eight-pound crown on your head, that, that would be kind of tough to do for very long. Uh, besides the crown usually worn, it was customary for kings in some nations to have such large ones as described, either hung or supported over the throne, where they sat on their or at their coronation and other solemn occasions. Now, what I'm seeing in verses 11, uh, 8 through 11, at least, is the attempt to fortify the city of David. In verse 9, Yah speaks of breaches of the city, which means there are holes in the defensive perimeter. And verse 9 says that these breaches are many. I would consider many a lot more than six or seven. Basically, what we are saying is the destruction of the city's walls and gates, and pretty soon, if it wasn't hasn't happened yet, uh, there will be invaders within the city. I think it's possible that some of these breaches were made by concerted effort of the citizens of the city to flee. The word translated breaches is H1233 from the, the Hebrew root 1234, 1234, that's interesting, uh, baka, uh, to split, to open a, a crevice. There is a Baca Valley in Israel that runs northeast to southwest at a very northern, uh, at the very northern end of Israel's territory, just to the east of Mount Lebanon and west of Damascus. The valley is the breach between the mountains, and the earliest way, easiest way rather, for eastern invaders like Babylon and Assyria to enter the land because there is water aplenty in the Euphrates and only a couple of days in which they'd ha they'd have no water to refill their bottles. Now, verse 10, that's why they always came that way. Verse 10, they numbered the houses of Jerusalem and broke down as many as they thought they would need to defend the city with catapults and stones and to reinforce the city's walls. The way KJV reads, it seems that the tore down every house for ammunition and reinforcements for the city walls. And in verse 11, we they made a, a a ditch, uh, believe it or not, the word ditch is from the Hebrew uh, 4724, mikvah. Okay, mikvah, like with striving. Okay, and uh, from the Hebrew 6960, kol, to, uh, to gather or to act or strive for a particular goal. Okay, now at how, least pause, pause there a second, MP. some coordination of effort. I'm sorry. What? Uh, just, just a second here. The word you said, and and it wasn't clear to me how you were pronouncing it. Mikvah is the same word that is. Is that, or what's the difference between the word that is used for a um, a dunking, a um, the, the ritual bathing that from which the the idea of I baptism comes? I think it's comes. pretty much the same, Mark. Okay, so I it's, think it's pretty much the same. The the the, the spelling in uh, in Hebrew is mem kuf vav hey. Okay, mikvah. So that's that's basically what we're looking at there. Um, 
means that to, to gather, act, strive for a particular goal. At least there seems to be some coordination of effort, but probably not enough. Nebuchadnezzar is right over there, okay, I'm pointing to him, with a number of tens of thousands of battle-hardened troops. Heck, they might have wiped some folk out on the way there, just to blood the newbies, you know, to get the, the newbies in the, in the thing uh, used to seeing blood. The uh, second half of verse 11 has an interesting turn of phrase. They say, you have not looked to the maker of the pool, uh, not respected its um, yetzar, mean, uh, or designer, yetzar -er, or designer, okay? You haven't looked to the maker of the pool. Now, take a guess as to whom yetzar refers. To my mind, the word whom has a capital W, and it means that they have not asked Yah what they should be doing. Okay? They're just doing what they think is, is correct without getting any kind of help from their Elohim. Doesn't make any sense to me. That's what I got through verse 11. Okay. Uh, Ray, do you have anything else, or should we continue on and, and read from verse 15 or thereabouts? Uh, no, uh, I, I think uh, here last week we had gone through uh, gone, gone through all of this. We did. I would remind folks there's a rather famous uh, verse, uh, verse 13, with the with the people that are seeing all this happening, and they say, "And behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine." In other words, they're they're. <laughs> They, they see the Babylonians coming, and then they say, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So they, they've, pretty much, they, they've pretty much given up. In other words, oh, well, what the heck, here, here we go. So that, that's an interesting uh, psychological uh, thing that the people are, uh, are, are going through. Exactly. Amen. Okay, well, then let's continue and uh, read on from verse 15. I'll read, um, this is some of the stuff that in, uh, at least the New King James is, is, is listed as the poetic form. Thus says Yehua Zevuot, go, proceed to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the house, and say, what you have here and whom you have here, that you have hewn a sepulcher here, as he who hews himself a sepulcher on high, who carves a tomb for himself in the rock. Indeed, Yahuwah will violently throw you away, O mighty man, and will surely seize you. He will turn you violently and toss you like a ball into a large country. There you shall die, and there your glorious chariots shall be the shame of your master's house. I'll drive you out of your office, he says, and from your position you'll be pulled down. So just a couple of comments. We'll go to Ray on this one first, and um, we'll probably, uh, I don't want to repeat all of this, but the background essentially is, the Shibna is not a fellow who has got a lot of ink in Scripture, and evidently uh, he uh, he hails from the time of Second Kings 18, probably in the house of Hezekiah, may have been the number two man, and uh, evidently uh, kind of like uh, Joseph, although Joseph didn't seem to have an overly high impression of himself, like Shibna must have for this to have happened. So what we're going to see here is that uh, the Creator is saying, look, you, you know, you think you're such hot stuff, you got this great sepulcher plan, and uh, I'm going to throw you like a ball and and exile you to another place, we're going to see that somebody else is going to take his place. And um, ultimately, it's a um, uh, it's another indication of um, those who tend to think too highly of themselves just might get put down. So go ahead, Ray. Uh, just uh, a couple of interesting things. We see in these 
uh, versus where we are talking about Shebna and Elakim, uh, the next oh, about five, six, seven verses. Interestingly, we go from, from Isaiah uh, prophesying against places or people to against individuals. Uh, that's kind of a, a fascinating change, uh, turn of event here. And, uh, Mark, I agree with you. Uh, I think probably Shebna was probably something akin to a regent, uh, in the, in the household there. Yeah. Um, uh, Shebna seems to be from what I, I know of him that he was a person that, uh, wanted to attract to himself respect and confidence and, and wanted to live big, uh, wanted, uh, Enjoyed all the trappings of his office, uh, was thought so highly of himself. He's having a, a tomb hewn for himself before he's even dead, you know, and he's, he's living big. He's, he's doing, uh, he's doing all this kind of, uh, kind of thing. And as you say, uh, we're going to see in chapter 36 in Isaiah when we get there that there's going to be a near fulfillment of this being prophesied here in, in the uh, 22nd chapter, but we'll see fulfillment happen uh, a dozen chapters later uh, uh, in, in uh, this, this very same book. And again, I think the, the overall message here for the people with, with both the comparisons he makes between Shebna, who seems to be the typical political person, you know, in it for themselves, selling paintings, uh, uh, oh, selling oh, oh. influence, doing stuff, you know, all that kind of stuff for their own Sniffing hair, aggrandizement. Yeah. Uh, that uh, basically he's telling the people, you know, stop trusting in men. And, and, and so here's your typical politician. Don't trust this guy. Exactly. That's my kind of read on it. Okay, well, and I saw one other interesting thing in a commentary that I think was kind of funny, at least. And, of course, because this is during the time of Hezekiah, uh, the, the commentator said, here's Hezekiah looking at the invading armies of Assyria, and this fool's out building himself a fancy tomb so he'd be remembered. So it um, it does kind of put it in perspective. Yeah. Um, uh, Mark, go ahead. Yeah, yeah exactly. All right, all right. I'm going to catch up. It'll take me about two minutes, and then I'll uh, I'll get into what we were talking about there. Azamer has a good overview on verses 12 to 14. They said this, Elohim called for mourning and repentance, but instead the people ate, drank, and celebrated. For tomorrow we die, basically. It was because they showed no qualms or of conscience over the intent, intent, imminent rather, destruction of the temple of Elohim, refused to grant them atonement except through their death. Our sages learned from verse 14 that if a person publicly desecrates the name of Hashem, he cannot secure complete atonement through repentance only, but only with his death. That's according to Yoma 86a. Now, I don't know about that last, but it is plausible. A lot of people are going to die in the upcoming skirmish, but not everyone will. Lots of people are going to be driven to Babylon, and a lot of those driven off will return. I looked at Yoma 86a online and I found this commentary. But in the case of one who has caused desecration of Elohim's name, his repentance is, has no power to suspend punishment, nor does Yom Kippur have power to atone for his sin, nor does suffering alone have power to absolve him. Rather, all these suspend punishment, the death absolves him, as it is stated, and Yatsevaot revealed himself to my ears, this iniquity shall not be atoned for until you die. 
That's in Isaiah chapter 12 and verse 14. Yah isn't kidding. If you decide to desecrate his name and do so knowing that you are sinning thereby, only your death will absolve you of that transgression. I would suggest if you are guilty of such, don't do it again. The wages of sin, each sin that is unatoned for, is death. Okay, so Azamra opens with a quick overview. Uh, detail is coming in uh, verse, uh, they're, they're commenting on verses 15 to 25. Uh, quick like, and then there's going to be more. Okay, Azamra says, the closing section of our present chapter is verses 15 to 25 is a separate prophecy in itself against the steward, Shevna, who is over the house. As discussed in Know Your Bible, Isaiah chapter 8, Shevna was the leader of a fifth column in Jerusalem in the time of King Hezekiah. He is specifically mentioned in Isaiah's narrative about the siege of Sennacherib as having been one of Hezekiah's envoys sent to the ramparts of Jerusalem to speak to Sennacherib's uh, spokesman, Rav Shekah, in Isaiah 36.3. There, the text says, or calls Shevna the scribe, while Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, is described as being over the house, meaning that the king's chamberlain, or perhaps the chief temple officer. However, in our present chapter, it is Shevna who is said to be over the house, in verse 15. Radak, on verse 20 of our present chapter, conjectures that Shevna was initially the king's chamberlain, but he was, but that he was demoted to the position of scribe while Eliakim was appointed over the house. Okay. It's prophesied in verses 20 through 24 of our present chapter. Now, here's me. I am more than sure that Shevna had allowed his position in the temple hierarchy, the purse strings holder, as it were, to go to his head. Here's Rashi on verse 15. Appointed over the temple, literally the house. He was appointed over the entire temple. Some say he was the high priest, and some say he was a temple trustee. And I am more than sure, this is me now, that Shevna didn't believe all the hype about Yatsevaot. He'd never seen Yah nor any demonstrable evidence of his existence. I think that he was another, has another thing coming before very long. So, in verse 16, Yah sends Yeshayahu to give Shevna a little what's for. Yah told Yeshayahu to ask Shevna, in a marked paraphrase, what's all of this stuff? And who's the stiff over there? And why are you carving yourself out a sepulcher among my saints? You do not belong here, to desecrate the holy ground in the presence of my servants. So I will see to it that my servants, the Babylonians, will be carrying you away to your death and exile, or I will watch your body be buried under your, after your spirit makes its way to its resting place. Enough of my babble. Here's what Rashi has to say. Scripture denigrates him because he wished to surrender Hezekiah to the king of Assyria as is stated in Sanhedrin 26a. He wrote a note and shot it on an arrow. Shevna and his company wish to make peace. Kizkiyahu and his company do not wish to make peace. That's literally what he wrote, okay? Great guy, that Shevna. Well, wait a second. Wait a second. 
Go let's ahead. let's make clear. This is this is rabbinic commentary again, right? We don't actually have a yes, copy of this note, so I just want to make sure we're we're on the same page. Correct. There. Okay. You're absolutely correct. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, Rashi telling us about this. Okay. Now, great guy that Shebna. And Yah continues speaking to Shebna via Yeshiah. And where are your family members who earned their place among the faithful in this tomb? Okay, Shevna was not a priest. Okay? She- oh, Shevna knows what's coming, and it ain't as he planned. I think he's probably, right about now, feeling the drainage of his bladder spilling down his leg. Rashi says it this way. What have you here? Okay? <laughs> Scripture denigrates him because he wished to surrender his kiyahu to the king of Assyria, as is stated in Sanhedrin 26a. He wrote a note and shot it on an arrow. Shebna and his company wish to make peace. His Kiyahu and his company do not wish to make peace. And whom do you have here? Who is your family? Of your family is buried here? Remember the question that was asked? He hews his grave on high, for he hewed a grave for himself among the graves of the house of David to be buried alongside the kings. Therefore he says to him, what right of heritage do you have here? And now when, he, when it says he asks him, it's, he's talking about Yah asking Shebna. Whether Shebna can actually hear it or not, I don't know. But the obvious answers are nothing and none. At this point, when he knows he's been discovered, has quite literally lost every bit of cover and is thoroughly exposed to everyone as a pretender to authority that he's never earned nor actually had, he knows that he is toast. Okay. I'm going to I'm going to quit right there and let you guys comment some more. Okay, Ray, you have anything you want to add on on any of that? Um again, I- interesting stuff. I don't know how much of it is accurate uh <laughs> is accurately uh as as far as scripture's concerned. I I'm not necessarily calling it into question. I just I just don't know. Certainly it seems to, uh, the, the commentaries seem to bear up what we have in scripture as far as him being, uh, a person that was very concerned with himself, uh, yes. you know, in his own, his own, uh, reputation, well-being, uh, and so on and, and so forth. Okay. Okay. Got about a minute before the bottom of the hour. Yeah, we're coming up on a break pretty quick. Okay, well, let's see. So any other comments on Shebna? We're going to talk about Hilkiah, um, uh, Heliakim, the son of Hilkiah here in just a minute. Uh, I guess we'll wait till we get that, uh, till till we get back. But uh, essentially to finish up what we're going to refer to when we return is uh, if he's going to, if Yahuwah is going to get rid of um, of Shebna and replace him, uh, this is the guy that he's going to replace him with. And we're going to see that he's uh, uh, evidently um, more worthy of the position. And and the fact that uh, this is what happens is probably a good key there. So um, it'll be in that day, he says, and I'll read one verse here, that I shall call my servant Eliakim, the son of uh, Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe, strengthen him with your belt. I will commit your responsibility into his hand. He shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And he's going to do more than that, but we'll get to the uh, rest of that when we get back. So uh, stay with us, folks. We're, uh, we sh- Actually, I know I think we got another whole minute here by my watch and, and clock. 
and I don't hear the music, so I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna think uh, that's that's probably true. Let me go ahead and read through the end of the chapter in that case. Um, after he says you're going to be pulled out of office and dragged down, and um, um, Eliakim is going to take your place, he says the key to the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shall show shall close or shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. I'll fasten him on a peg in a secure place, and he will become a glorious throne to his father's house. They will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the posterity, the vessels of small quantity, and the caps, um, the cups to all the pitchers. And that day, says the ruler Zebuot, that peg that is fastened, and we'll pick it up with the peg when we get back. And I pray, don't take me soon, because I am here for a reason. Sometimes in my tears I drown, but I never let it get me down. So when negativity surrounds, I know something segment of the Torah Teachers Roundtable, talking about Isaiah chapter 22, and as we went to break, the uh, the break caught me about 15 seconds early. I thought I had enough time to finish that last verse in chapter 22 and didn't, but it says that, and it says this, in that day, says Yehua Zevot, the peg that is fastened in the secure place will be removed and be cut down and fall, and the burden that was on it will be cut off. For Yahuwah has spoken. So uh, that's how the chapter ends. And um, with that, uh, let's see. Let's go to MP and let him comment first. All right. Thank you. Um, yeah, what a great guy that Shevna was, wasn't he? Uh, Yah continues speaking to Shevna via Yeshayahu. And where are your family members who earned their place among the faithful in this tomb? Okay, I'm, I'm going back to cover this because it... It goes on for quite some time. Oh, Shebna knows what's coming, and it ain't as he planned. I think he's probably right about now in the story, feeling the drainage of his bladder sliding, slipping down his leg. Now, Rashi says it this way. What have you here? Scripture denigrates him because he he wished to surrender his Kiyahu to the king of Assyria, as is stated in Sanhedrin 26a. He wrote a note and shot it on an arrow. Shebna and his company wish to make peace. His Kiyahu does not wish to make peace. And whom do you have here? Who of your family is buried here? Yah asks this question. He hews his grave on high, for he hewed a grave for himself 
among the graves of the house of David to be buried among the kings. Therefore, he says to him, what right of heritage do you have in these graves? Now, the obvious answers are nothing and none. Okay? Um, at this point, what he knows, he's been discovered. Okay? He knows he's been discovered. Has quite literally lost every bit of cover and is thoroughly exposed to everyone as a, a pretender to authority. And he's never earned nor actually had. He knows that he is toast. I think that Yah allowed Rashi to feel the delight of writing this stuff. That Rashi delighted in Yah's revelation to him of what the wicked experienced, and that that delight came with a warning to himself that this very thing could be his own fate if he ever went to the other side, as it were. Talk about incentive, huh? So Rashi has this bit more on Shevna. And this is kind of lengthy, but at, at the height of the siege of Jerusalem, Shebna, as Hizkiyahu's scribe, put on an outward uh, display of loyalty that was secretly bent on treachery. The Hebrew word for steward in verse 15, Sochen, from the Hebrew Sahan, has the connotation of one who is given over to life of, a life of pleasure, as was David Rashi Adlok, 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 2. Now, from verse 16, we can infer that Shevna had prepared a magnificent mausoleum for himself with the kings of Yehuda. That's according to Rashi again. Uh, apparently, he intended to break out of Jerusalem and go, after, go over the side, uh, to the side of Sennacherib, expecting that he would be appointed king in place of Chizkiyahu. The Talmud state, uh, relates that Shevna shot an arrow to the Assyrian camp with a message that he and his party were in favor of capitulation, while Hizkiyahu was defiant. However, after Shevna left Jerusalem, the angel Gabriel closed the city gates, preventing any of his followers from leaving or his return. And when Shevna came alone to Sennacherib's camp, the king had him tied to horses' tails and dragged over thorns. That according to Sanhedrin 6, 26a and b. Now I think that was a pretty just punishment direct from Yah. In fact, I think that in verses 17 and 19 is a wonderful pronouncement from Yah through Yeshayahu to this conniving punk. The realization will be a kind of a downer for Shevna, if you catch my drift. He, his plans go thoroughly awry. He will be carried off to Babylon, <clears throat> and no one will even know he's on the journey or of his arrival. He will be so completely covered, hidden from the rabble, that no one will even know he's there. Talk about a downer. Yah will see to it that no one in the entourage to Babylon will even know that Shevna the Great is in the caravan and will never see him in Babylon. How long do you think it will be before he wishes he had been slain by the Babylonians. That's what I have through verse 19. Okay, Ray, you have any additional comments so, on that? Go ahead. Well, are we done with Shebna now? Can we move on to uh, Elohim? Yeah, and, I was, and I was hoping there. too. Yeah, th oh, yeah, let's do that. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, as far as Elohim is concerned, a, a couple of things. 
from all that we can tell from scripture here, he seems to be a very competent person. Uh, he seems to be someone that is doing his job, doing it well, concerned with what, how things go. He's, he's a good bureaucrat. He's, he's somebody who's, who's, who's doing his job and all that. The thing that I find very, very interesting about this, uh, and I mean, yeah, you know, he says he's gonna give him the key to the house of David, you know, to the, the none, he will be able to shut what none shall shut and open what none, uh, no others can open. And I mean, he's, he's really, uh, Yah heaps praise on him. But the interesting thing in the very last verse, this is, uh, 2225, it says though, in that day declares Jehovah Sebaot, the peg that was fastened in a secure place, he's the peg. Remember, he's the one that's been hung up on the peg. Will give way and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off. Thus, uh, Yehovah has spoken. In other words, saying, you know, this guy is a good guy. He's doing everything humanly possible, uh, that he can to, to keep things going. But ultimately, th- there's going to be a failure that's going to happen. Ultimately, the collapse of the regime is going to happen and it's going to happen by a combination of internal weakness, uh, uh, outward, uh, uh, you know, conquest and all these other things. And basically, again, this, the Lord Almighty exposes the folly of trusting a human being when the Lord is there to be trusted instead. And uh, I, again, we, we see him and, 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 uh, we see this in scripture in many places that oftentimes we have a tale of two people, of two women, of two men, of two kings, of two, you know, priests, whatever it happens to be. And usually it's done in such a way to show a great contrast. It's like, well, you can do it this way or you can do it this way. And then the additional message that's given in the end is, you know what? Either one of these at the end of the day are both just men. You should be trusting in me, not in them. So that would be my comment uh, for Elohim. Very good. Um. I don't have anything to add to that. Mark, are you ready, or should we continue into Chapter 23 or not? Uh, no, I'm not ready for that yet. Uh, I'm around verse 19. I just finished it, so uh, let me uh, let me jump a little bit more. Um, verses 20 to 25. Uh, these verses are spoken by Yeshayahu directly to Shevna in the name of Yah. Yah is giving him exactly what he has earned. Uh, in Rab, uh, Rabbi Nachman's teaching, this is from uh, uh, Rashi. In Rabbi Nachman's teaching in Likute Mohoran uh, 2.1, Shevna is seen as the archetype of the false leader, while El Yakim Ben Hilkiah is the archetype of the true tzaddik. El Yakim's name means God arises. If this man's name comes close to his character, He'll be a breath of fresh air after Shevna. Now, remember that Yah is speaking to the end of this chapter directly through Yeshayahu. El-Yakim ben Kilkiahu um, will uh, live up to his name. According to Rashi, El-Yakim means uh, was, a, was appointed over the house when Sennacherib took him, i.e. that took Shevna, as we find, when they went out to rob Shekah, and he revealed to him Shebna and his company, and they dragged him with their horses' tails, as is related in Sanhedrin 26b. 
When Sennacherib went to Tirhakah, king of Cush, he swept away Shevna and his company and went away. <laughs> Looks like Shevna got what he deserved. And that Eliakim did too. Okay, Eliakim was a good guy. In verse 21, Yah sees to it that Eliakim gets the position that he deserves, being arguably the most righteous man in line for the throne of Yehuda. That's really lovely about, what's really lovely about this is that Shevna gets to watch and stew over it as he rides ignominiously to Babylon in chains. The stark contrast that probably took place over the matter of minutes in the changing of hands holding the scepter, as it were, of Yehuda, at least until they are carried to Babylon, and probably in Babylon, for as long as they didn't attempt to escape or rise up against Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I think that the uh, Nebuchadnezzar would allow the Yehudi king to rule his people while they were there and obeying his, that is Nebuchadnezzar's rules. Just don't cross him. And Yah expects Eliakim to do what he, Yah, commands him through his prophets. Okay? That's first through verse 21. Now, in verses 22 and 23, Yah gives a physical headship on Eliakim, the keys of the temple and of the house of David. TSK has this comment. As the robe and the baldric mentioned in the preceding verse were the ensigns of power and authority, so likewise was the key the mark of the office, either sacred or civil. To comprehend how the key could be borne on the shoulder, it will be sufficient to observe that the ancient keys were of considerable magnitude and much bent. <laughs> that's that's kind of interesting. They, they were bent a lot so they could just like throw them over his shoulder. If El-Yakim stays faithful to Yah while in captivity in Babylon, Yah will see to it that their sojourn there will be easy and relatively short. Now in verse 23, Yah says that if the king obeys him, he will make their captivity relatively painless and maybe prosperous. Rashi says this on verse 23, And I will appoint him a faithful trustee serving in a sure place. Jonathan renders, um, wait a minute, i gotta, I got to read this one, and it's in small print. Ne'ebach, uh, okay, Nema'an, I'm sorry, Nema'an, as sure. Jonathan renders Nema'an as sure. In other words, the place that is faithful to those who lean on it, for it shall not move. Another explanation is to reverse the word order of the verse. I will trust him a sure peg in a place. Uh, the difference is almost non-existent. Yah will either make his kiahu the thing Yehuda will trust, or Yah will make himself a solid thing upon which to trust. It is almost six of one and a half dozen of the other. Same, same. The thing that's been promised here is a fixed point to which to resort in time of need. Yehuda could trust that their king would have their backs with the kings of Babylon. They will need someone whom they can trust to intercede with the emperors of Babylon and who would have their best. And as the king provides a fixed point on which to trust, they will have hope of a decent life, even in captivity, until the time comes when they can return to their own land under their own king. 
Now, in verses 24 and 25, and this is a, will be done here real quick, have some interesting turns of phrase. The people will hang on the king, all the glory of his father's house, the offspring and the issue. Offspring is pretty easy to figure out. Children. The issue, believe it or not, is the extrusion, <laughs> literal meaning of the Hebrew 6849, uh, tzachia, uh, that escapes the nether end of the elementary canal, okay, the extrusion. Bashi has somewhat less literal idea. The children and the grandchildren, uh, Jonathan renders the children and the children's children, Menachem, uh, associates it with, in Ezekiel 4.15, cattle dung. This teaches us that it is an expression of tiny infants that issue forth from their mother's womb, making... Uh, a field, okay, an expression of coming out, i.e., a thing that comes out. Shall the peg move? Okay, that is what I got for the rest of this chapter. The peg is the extrusion that we talked about earlier. Uh, so <laughs> I tried my best to circumlocute that, but still make it understandable. Okay. I, I, I find it interesting the uh, looking in the ESV. Uh, they translate 24, hang him a uh, whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue. There I have Tsefiyat, and yeah, let's see, what is that, 6849, and that says an, an offshoot or a leaf. And I've checked, that's in one Hebrew dictionary, and in the other I've checked, and it says offshoot as well. And and I, I, I just don't, I don't know... Uh, the other definitions that you give, I, I haven't, I haven't, I just, I haven't ever seen those. I'm not, to my mind, that doesn't make too much sense. But then again, my, <laughs> there are many things that <laughs> don't make sense to me that are right. So that, that's, that's good too. <laughs> yeah, look uh, at the world. I just, uh, anyway, that's interesting. Yeah, the, uh, the, the reason I, I use that particular terminology is that, is that, it said extrusion in the yeah, uh, you were very in, polite. in the etymological dictionary of biblical Hebrew. Okay, I see. So, <laughs> and that's and that's where I got that idea. Yes, you you were you were you were very polite. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I did my very best. You did. You did a good job. <laughs> okay. Well, are we and ready now <laughs> to continue into twenty three? I think. Yeah, I, I am. Okay, yeah, we can go to twenty three. Let's let's go into twenty three now. We we talked oh, about I'll have to lie on other people, but well, we we talked about we talked about this city of Tyre. Uh, I don't remember. It's been in the last month or so. And Tyre, remember, is a um, is a major port, and it has kind of a long history. And there's a lot of discussion about it. But there's a proclamation against Tyre that we're going to see here as well. So it's off the uh, coast from Sidon. And um, we'll uh, we'll probably go through some of the more history. M MP may have some stuff he wants to say, or maybe maybe Ray does too. But again, um, this is a uh, this is a place that gets uh, quite a bit of press in uh, in scripture, one way or another. And uh, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the um, the archaeological supplements that are uh, uh, well, the one I'm looking at here, for example, says it was the most famous seaport of the ancient Bible lands, about 20 miles south of Sidon on an island. So it was literally on an island offshore, had two harbors and high walls and so forth. So lots of stuff going on there, a major center of trade as a result, as you would expect. So here we go. 
The burden against Tyre, it says, wail, you ships of Tarshish, for it's laid waste, so that there is no house, no harbor. From the land of Cyprus, uh, it is revealed to them. Be still, you inhabitants of the coastland, you merchants of Sidon, whose, um, wh- whom those who cross the sea have filled. And on great waters, the grain of Shehor, the harvest of the river, and uh, that would seem to be the um, the Nile. And she is a marketplace for the nations. Now, I'm going to make just one other comment here. And as I read this, and I think about things that we see in Revelation, uh, certainly there were things that did happen to Tyre. So to some extent, this is a prophecy that we can see uh, has already happened. And um, and yet, what I can't uh, I can't escape is this idea of the of the merchants of the sea of the merchants wailing and this major harbor and uh, you know her her burning is gone Babylon the great has fallen has fallen we we recognize the references a lot of these references sound very familiar in other words from things that people have probably read uh, more often and that has to do with Revelation so again a um, a great harbor here and it's going to be destroyed yeah Ray puts a note uh, Revelation eighteen eleven so thank you on that anyway. Um, the harvest of the river is her revenue. She is a marketplace for the nations. So that's kind of the point. Be ashamed, it says, O Sidon. And I'll read a couple more verses and we'll pause. I'll go to you, Mark, first. Uh, for the sea has spoken. The strength of the sea, saying, I do not labor nor bring forth children, neither do I bear rear um, young men nor bring up virgins. When the report reaches Egypt or Mitraim, they also will be in agony at the report of Tyre. So uh, let's pause there. Uh, Mark, go ahead and take it where you'd like. Okay. Well, uh, got a comment on the burden of Tyre. Um, Tyre, whose destruction by Nebuchadnezzar is here foretold in this chapter, uh, was a city of Phoenicia on the shore of the Mediterranean, 24 miles south of Sidon, and 32 miles north of Aho or Ptolemais, according to the uh, wait a minute, Antonine and Jerusalem itineraries, uh, about latitude 33 degrees, 18 minutes north. They don't need to worry about that. Anyway, there were two cities by this name. One on the continent uh, called Pale Tyrus and Old Tyre, according to Strabo, 30 stadia south of the other, which was situated on an island, not above 700 paces from the mainland, says Pliny. Now, Old Tyre was, take, was taken by Nebuchadnezzar after a siege of 13 years in B.C. 573, which he also utterly destroyed that it never afterwards rose higher than a village. But previous to this, the inhabitants had removed their effects to the island which afterwards became so famous by the name of Tyre, though now consisting only of about 800 dwellings. Okay, so Tyre is out on an island, and it's very defensible, is the whole point, because Nebuchadnezzar went in there and he tore the place up. And that uh, that kind of gave him the idea. Well, let's go out there and build a city out there. So uh, Tyre's a Tyre's a, a has always been a major port on the Mediterranean Sea. Now, um, where was I at? Oh, okay. Uh, Whale ye ships of Tarshish, who became wealthy through the Tyre merchants of Tyre. For the ships of Tarshish would bring merchandise to Tyre. Tarshish is the name of the sea. Uh, for it has been pillaged from within. 
for it has been pillaged from within the place you were wont to lodge from uh, coming any more amid, into his midst, and you will no longer have a place in Tyre to lodge there. And uh, we got the land of the Katim. Where is that at? There it is right up there in verse 1. The Katim are Romans, okay, according to uh, Rashi. The marauder appears to be uh, the people of Tyre. An another explanation of, I'm sorry, wait a minute. Um, oh, okay. Uh, the people of Tyre fled to Kittim, and from there the news was heard. Okay, so they took, they, they fled from Tyre, they went to uh, Rome, and they spread the, the news abroad that Nebuchadnezzar has had taken Tyre, not just the, the land site, but also the one on the island. So that's, uh, that's what I got for verse 1 anyway, or verse 2. Okay. Verse 1. Okay. Uh, Ray? Um, a couple, sure, a couple of thoughts. Uh, would remind uh, folks that uh, Tyre and uh, and uh, that whole area, they didn't... They, whoops. Apologies. We, uh, we got caught by the top of the hour. So uh, we'll pick it up and uh, we'll go back to Ray after this. Don't take me soon, because I am here for a reason. Sometimes in my ears I travel, but I never let it get me. So when negativity surrounds, I know someday that the Lord turn around because all my life I've been waiting for, I've been praying for, for the people to say that we don't want to fight no more, there'll be no more wars, and our children will Shout the song of the ones who overcome the song of the Lamb, the song of Moshe, the song of the ones who overcome. Welcome to the Tanakh edition of the Torah Teachers Roundtable with your host, Ray Harrison, Mark Patron, and yours truly, Mark Call, where, as always, we continue to hope that you'll find this program educational and interesting and rewarding. But above all, you'll take that lesson from the Bereans and search out the scriptures for yourself. See if these things be true. All right. Welcome back, folks, to the second hour now of the Torah Teachers Roundtable Tanakh Edition. And as we went to the break, we got caught and uh, interrupted Ray. So let me go back to him and let me let him pick it up right wherever he was. No problem. I just had gotten started. We're uh, uh, for the audience. We're in uh, twenty-three-one right now through twenty-three-five, talking about Tyre and the uh, the oracle or the prophecy against Tyre. Uh, of course, Tyre is a very very important, uh, if not the important seaport on the eastern side of the Mediterranean. And all that was of huge economic benefit, not only to their economy, but uh, to the economy of Israel as well. would remind uh, listeners as well that David and Solomon both enjoyed very warm relations with Tyre. They supplied a great deal of uh, 
uh, of material and support and all that for the building of the temple. Uh, you recall that Solomon also took Phoenician wives and unfortunately also imported the cult of uh, Sidonian uh, Ashtoreth uh, and, and all of that sort of thing. So certainly there's, there's, uh, uh, Yahweh has a, a reason to, to uh, uh, be a little bit cross <laughs> in, ah. in that, that regard though. Uh, interestingly, uh, as we go down, uh, in verse three, fascinatingly, it says on many waters, your revenue was the green. And I have, a, a, a shikor, uh, and all that. I look in the Hebrew shikor and, and basically it, it said that it was the canal of Horus. And actually that's a reference to, uh, well, it says later in that verse, the harvest of the Nile. That there was apparently uh, that that was a very famous canal out of the Nile that was an area that uh, uh, that uh, uh, was of great economic interest to the Egyptians and all that. So there's a comparison going on, and then also it talks about interestingly in in twenty three four and five about the ocean speaking. Uh, the Hebrew there is Yam. Uh, thus Sidon for Yam has spoken, uh, and, and the sea saying, I, you know, I don't give birth, I don't rear young men, I don't bring up young women. Uh, but when the report comes to Egypt, they will anguish over this report about Tyre. And this, uh, again, this really, um, uh, this really clicks in to verses that we see in Revelation 18 where it talks about the ship fares and the seafaring men, the, the trade all across the sea, they stand afar and they cry out, uh, at, at the, at the, the, at the great city that was burning and all that. Of course, in Revelation, the reference is to Babylon, but I think we see again this similar, uh, kind of thing that, that's being, uh, that's being reported here. So that's, that's more or less what I have on these first five verses. Okay. Uh, MP, why don't you go where you'd like to go then? All right. Um, where have we been? Let's see. Whale, you ships of Tarshish. Have we covered? Have I covered any of that? Um, whale, you ships of Tarshish, who come became wealthy through the merchants of Tyre, for the ships of Tarshish would move, would bring merchandise to Tyre. Tarshish is the name of the sea, okay, for it has been pillaged from within. For it has been pillaged from within, the place you were wont to lodge from coming any more into its midst, and you will no longer have a place in Tyre to lodge there. Now, the burden of, of Tzor is what it, uh, what it says in Hebrew uh, in verse 1. In this chapter, the prophet foretells and laments the terrible coming destruction of the great seafaring city Tzor, Tyre. Uh, according to the simplest and most obvious interpretation of this prophecy, Tzor refers to the city of Tyre and Lebanon, which under King Hiram had showed favor to Israel in the days of King David and King Shlomo, but which later betrayed her. The implication of Tzor in this chapter with Tyre is endorsed by Rashi uh, on verse 5, and I'll look at that in a little bit. On the 
grounds that the prophesied fall of Tsor is said to bring shame to Sidon, which is not far north of Tyre, on the Lebanese coast. Now, however, Rashi also mentions the opinion of Rabbi Elazar ben Padat, uh, brought in uh, Midrash uh, Tanhuma Ba'era, chapter 13. We lose you, Mark? MP? Ray, you there? I'm here. Okay, sounds like we lost MP. You're not hearing him either, right? I believe. No, I'm not. Okay. Well, we'll we'll see if he shows back up again. He still shows on the screen, so I think it's his his uh, mic or his connection has just dropped out. Uh, if you're hearing us, Mark, uh, let us know you're still there. But uh, Ray, you got anything you want to add on uh, on this before we go ahead and continue? If he if he uh, if he doesn't come back right away. Whoops, Ray, did we lose you too? Now I'm not hearing anybody. Sounds like we got a connection issue. Ray? Hello, guys. There we go. MP's back. Wow, everybody was leaving for a second. Lost a lot of power. <laughs> okay, how about now? Yeah, I've got you, Ray. Everybody was gone for a second. <laughs> oh, Mark. MP, wow. if you can go, go before okay. well, before the whole system crashes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was mine that crashed that caused the anyway. It mine was, just shut off. You went anyway, first. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, Rashi mentions the uh, the opinion of Rabbi Elazar ben Padad, um, uh, brought in Midrash Tanhuma that the prophecy of, in this chapter is directed against Edom and Rome, believe it or not. Edom, Rome, is they're uh, uh, conflating the two. Whether they are conflated or not, I don't know. But um, that's, that's not that's uncommon. People here. will do that. Um, they'll, they'll make that claim prophetically, that they're, that they're either one and the same or very much similar or whatever the case may be. Well, the, yeah, they are very similar. That is true. Okay, so... The Rome, whose great fall in time to come will strike terror into people's hearts like the terror inspired by the fall of Egypt at Elohim's hands. This comparison between the impact and fall of Tzor, Tyre, and that of Egypt is contained in verse 5. According to the report as to Egypt, so they will tremble at the report of Tzor. Rashi lists ten plagues that according to the various verses in the prophets will befall Edom, each corresponding to one of the ten plagues in Egypt. Rabbi Elazar ben Padat's opinion is founded on the opinion of Rabbi Elazar that every place in the Bible uh, text where Tzor is spelled uh, chaser, uh, defectively, uh, in other words, without a, the the letter Vav in the middle, is, uh, as in our present text, it refers to the kingdom of Edom, while every Tzor that is, mentioned, that is spelled uh, Malay, full, with the Vav, refers to the city of Tyre. That's Tanchuma, again, uh, hmm. cited earlier. Okay. Uh, the, uh, the root Tsar, without a Vav, means 
a trouble or an oppressor. While the root sor, with the vav, means to form or to create. Now, that's kind of interesting. So you, you can either be a, 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 a creator or you can be an oppressor. <laughs> and, and both of them can be uh, spelled like tire. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm going to quit at that point right there, about verse 4. Okay. Uh, Ray, were you, uh, I know we interrupted you when we had all the problems with the connections. No, no problem. Uh, uh, I, I think, again, as I say, I, I think uh, uh, MP was giving uh, more detail, rabbinic detail, but basically I think we're all saying the same thing. Uh, here in, in terms of uh, sore or tire. I like uh, So uh, maybe we can go on for another five or so verses and get the next chunk. Okay, so now we're going to change gears just a little bit and talk about Tarshish. And verse 6 says, Cross over to Tarshish, wail, you inhabitants of the coastland. Is this your joyous city whose antiquity is from ancient days? whose feet carried her far off to dwell, who has taken this counsel against Tyre, the crowning, whose merchants, princes, whose traders are the honorable of the earth. Yahuwah Zebuot has purposed it to bring to dishonor the pride of all glory, to bring into contempt all the honorable of the earth. Overflow through your land like the river. And um, again, the Nile is the reference here. Say um, most of the people uh, comment on it. O daughter of Tarshish, no more strength, or there is no more strength. He stretched out his hand over the sea. He shook the kingdoms. Yahuwah has given a commandment against Canaan to destroy its stronghold. And he said, you'll rejoice no more. O you oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon, arise, cross over to Cyprus. There also you will have no rest. And I'll read uh, two more verses, and we'll pause, and um, I'll go to you this time, Ray. Behold, the land of the Chaldeans, this which... This people, which was not. Assyria founded it for wild beasts of the desert. They set up its towers, they raised up its palaces, and brought it to ruin. Wail, you ships of Tarshish, for your strength is laid waste. So it sounds like kind of a bad uh, a bad era for Tarshish, I guess. Go ahead, Ray. Uh, again, the, uh, the, the interesting... Thing is, is basically, uh, we're, we're, what we're seeing here is that the inhabitants of, of this whole coastland area, uh, at least that's the way I'm reading this, uh, uh, are, are basically being carried uh, or are, are fleeing and, and, and leaving the area, uh, is what I get from this. Not so much that there's a slaughter being had right there and, and all of that, uh, uh, you, you talks across over your land like the not. Oh no no no, that's wrong. Where am I? Uh, pardon me, folks. Uh, well, I, I lost the verse where they're going to Crete, but but uh, but anyway, the uh, what I what I see here again is that there are uh, we're. That the hopes that Sidon had had, that Tarshish had, and all that—that that, that they're, it's it's as if they had not been before, uh, and that finally uh, they are uh, the Lord. It's the Lord's plan uh, to to evacuate them 
the the people's out of this area. So it's not uh, an economically viable area any longer. That's in general terms. That's what I have. Okay. Uh, certainly doesn't sound. Yeah, like I said, doesn't sound doesn't sound like it's an appealing situation for them. Regardless, uh, Mark. No, no, not at all. All right. Um, yeah, the uh, the marauders spoken of, uh, of people that went after after Rome. I'm, I'm thinking appeared to the people of Tyre. Another explanation is that from the land of Katim, the plunder of Tyre was revealed to the people of Tarshish. For the people of Tyre fled to Kittim, that is, I believe, Rome, and uh, from there the news was heard. Now, uh, be silent, ye island dwellers. Um, I believe that's verse 2. Um, be thou ashamed, O Sidon. Uh, yeah, it's verse 2. Anyway, mm-hmm. And on great waters, the seed would come upon Egypt, and it's situated in the the river Shehor, or to Tyre. The harvest of the Nile, that's Egypt as the revenue of Tyre. Um, I'm, I'm getting lost here. Um, let me run back here. Okay. The burden... Of Tyre in this chapter, okay, the prophet foretells and laments the terrible coming destruction of the great sea trading city Tsor. We've already seen that. Rashi also mentions the opinion of Rabbi Elazar ben Padat through the uh, Midrash Tanhuma Ve'era on chapter 13 that the prophecy in this chapter is directed against Edom, that is Rome, whose Great fall is in time to come will strike terror into people's hearts like the terror inspired by the fall of Egypt in God's, at God's hand. The uh, comparison between the impact of the fall of Tsor and that of Egypt is contained, contained in verse 5, according to the report as to Egypt. So they will tremble at the report of Tsor. Rashi lists ten plagues that according to the various verses in the chapter, in the prophets rather, will befall Edom, each corresponding to one of the ten plagues in Egypt. Rabbi Elazar ben Padat, his opinion is founded on the opinion of Rabbi Elazar that every place in the Bible text where Tsor is spelled uh, uh, defectively, you, you, okay, you read this, MP, uh, without the letter Bob in the middle. What's that? You you already read this, MP. Oh, I did. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, then let's move on. Regardless of whether this prophecy applies only to the city of Tyre, which in recent times has distinguished itself mainly by giving shelter to Hezbollah terrorists while firing missiles into Israel, or also to Edom, which is today still desperately clinging to the last vestiges of its ascendancy, the calamity portrayed as uh, is one of cataclysmic proportions. A city that is teeming, or was a teeming, busy, prosperous international trading center, in verses 2 and 3, is cast down only to see many of its finest young men and women destroyed as if they had never existed, in verse 4, while the remaining inhabitants flee into the exile in all directions, in verses 6 and 7. The calamity is from Elohim alone, 
in order to take vengeance on Sor for its arrogance. Okay, that's what I got through verse 8. If you'd like to, uh, have, we, have we read further than that? I read through the end of the section having to do with Tarshish, which is um, verse uh, 14 into 15. Okay, well then let me get a little bit more here. Uh, in verse 12, God tells the inhabitants of Sion to migrate to Kittim, which means Italy, by the way. Uh, hi, <laughs> I'll see you guys there another time. Anyway, um, refers to Italy. This seems to suggest a kinship between the people of ancient Tyre and the environs and the city of Rome, which was a relatively recent habitation in the time of Isaiah. Verse 13 seems to indicate that Sor itself was originally established by the Chaldees, the Kasdim, under the auspices of Assyria, the irony being that they would now come to destroy it. Assyria is coming to destroy the town that they that they built, that is um, uh, Egypt. Uh, I'm losing, I lost the, the word I was looking for. Anyway, anyway uh, let's see. Calamity is from God alone in order to take vengeance on Sor for its arrogance. That's the idea. Uh, Tyre was, was becoming very arrogant, as Rome did uh, when uh, at the turn of, the, uh, of time, actually. Uh, when Yeshua was uh, was crucified, and over the next couple of hundred years, when it took over uh, the religion all over that particular area, and not just Europe, but also the Middle East, um, Rome is a, is a was a really, really, really wicked place. And my fortunately, my father didn't come from the boot; he came from the football. So <laughs> that's that's what I got through of verse, about verse eight. Okay. Uh, Ray, you've already commented. Uh, Mark? We ready to move on? Yeah, I, I just uh, I, I just wanted to make one more comment, and you you all had mentioned it, and it, it did bring it to mind. Certainly there is a, a near uh, fulfillment of this prophecy uh, it, it, as far as Isaiah is concerned and all that. But again, uh, as, we, as we look on and as we get to the end of this chapter, we're going to see that there will be a – uh, kind of a postscript, a, a rise and renewal of Tyre, and all of that, which I think is fascinatingly interesting. But uh, but going beyond that, just looking at that area of the world today, we see what is what we now call Lebanon. Uh, again, the the Lebanon of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, uh, up until uh, uh, up until they got crossways with the Marines and Jimmy Carter and all of that. Um, Lebanon was absolutely the, uh, it was the vacation spot of the Mediterranean. You it was yeah. enormously successful, enormously cosmopolitan, absolutely. uh, 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 civilization that was going on there. And, and the Lebanese were, uh, looked upon with, uh, with a great deal of, uh, uh, respect, uh, from a number of people. I can think of, uh, there are a number of American Compo uh, uh, performers, uh, uh, the immediate one comes to mind is uh, Danny, uh, uh, Danny Thomas. Danny Thomas, yeah, yeah. He was from Lebanon. And, and I mean, who, who, yeah, who did who did enormous amounts of good works uh, in founding hospitals and, and, and all kinds of stuff, aside from his own career. But but uh, the, the Lebanese people uh, and the Lebanese Christians as well, 
were highly respected um, in in Western culture and all that. And then as as the uh, the forces of Islam uh, really took over in that country, then we see this this spiraling descent into into what it is now. And it's just basically, uh, I mean, the pictures you see of of Beirut and, and uh, I mean, it's just it's a junkyard. Bombed out uh, shell. You yeah. know, uh, uh, it has been completely devastated yeah. again. So we see another, a near time in, in our, um, in our time of a, of a fulfillment. Although, you know, uh, you can't call it tiring. Uh, well, uh, actually, a modern day tire does exist, but, but the, the whole countryside that we're, we're talking about right now has, uh, really seen uh, enormous difficulties in the last uh, 50 years. So. For what it's worth. Oh yeah, they've seen it. They've seen it even worse in the last fifteen years, with the uh, the the rise of Hezbollah and Hezbollah, all yeah. of those, um, and, and you know the ones that started the war on October seventh. Uh, yes. <laughs> I was I was in uh, my son's synagogue in uh, in uh, Colorado Springs on October seventh when the news came, and the place just went silent. I mean, absolutely silent. I can imagine. Uh, well, it was it was pretty bad, um, and it's a it's a messianic synagogue. So there were there were Christians, there were Jews, and there were messianics in the place. Yes, and and uh, it's like the place just started to weep, and there yes. was nothing that could be done about it. Yeah, it's the same. My wife and I we were in Oklahoma at a at a tabernacles gathering, and yeah. here we are in the great the, the the great day preparing for worship service when the news came, and it was. Yeah, it was uh, it was one of those one of those things where you remember where where you were when Kennedy was assassinated. Kind of one of those events that yeah. you yeah you, you you remember exactly where you were and what was going on. A Challenger exploded uh, the oh, anniversary yeah. just over the weekend, yeah, yeah. and a lot of people were remembering that too. So yes. yeah, we can certainly see a lot of these. Yes. All right, um, Mark. Oh. Has, go ahead. I sound like you had more. Okay. Um, let me see what I got here. Um, uh, regardless of whether this prophecy applies only to the city of Tyre, which in recent times distinguished itself mainly by giving shelter to Hezbollah terrorists. I already read that, didn't I? Yep. So okay. Okay. Well, this time we're at the break, so we will uh, we'll take the bottom uh, of the hour break. We'll be back for the last segment after this.
we are back, folks, and we are trying to work our way through chapter 23. Uh, let's go ahead and go back to Ray, and uh, he wants to talk about verse 15. So uh, do you want me to go ahead and read it, Ray, or do you no, want to no. comment first? No, no Mark, I, I don't want to talk about it. I want you to read 15 and on. Okay, good. And it'll come to pass. Now it says, it shall come to pass in that day that Tyre will be forgotten 70 years, according to the days of one king. At the end of 70 years, it'll happen to Tyre as in the song of the harlot. And here it comes, verse 16. Take a harp, go about the city, you forgotten harlot. Make sweet melody, sing many songs that you may be remembered. And it shall be at the end of 70 years that Yahuwah will deal with Tyre. She will return to her hire and will commit fornication with all of the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. And again, I can't help but think that certainly echoes what we see in Revelation as well and a reference to that great city that is a seaport and the merchants of the world wax rich through her delicacies. Her gain and her pay will be set apart for Yahuwah. It will not be treasured nor laid up, for her gain will be for those who dwell before Yahuwah to eat sufficiently and for fine clothing. So, okay, Ray, let's go to you on this one then. Well, just a comment here is I find it fascinating that we're looking for a judgment here of 70 years uh, that mirror the 70-year captivity of which Judah uh, undergoes at the hands of Babylon. Um, uh, Fascinatingly, also, we talk about the song of the prostitute uh, uh, and that, uh, that we see References to in, oh, where was it? I just had it. Um, oh, there, there are references in, in Jeremiah. There are references in Ezekiel. Uh, and, uh, and interestingly, in 17, it says at the end of 70 years, the Lord will revisit Tyre and she will return her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. But it says she will return her wages. So it sounds as if that, that there, that some good is going to come of this. Uh, and, and because in 18, her merchandise and her wages will be holy to the Lord and not stored up and, and hoarded, but her merchandise will supply food and clothing to all those who dwell before the Lord. I'm just wondering what you guys see on that because this is, this to me is, uh, this verse 18 is a real puzzlement. Um, uh, so what, what do you fellows have, have on this? It's, it's very interesting that such a wicked and evil place could, uh, that the, the, the produce of such a wicked and evil place could then become holy to the Lord. Well, uh, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the easy, obvious one is that he can cleanse things and he can make something which is, uh, uh, that's the well, one of the yeah. red heifer, if you think about it, to make that which is uh, filthy to be clean again. Sure. Uh, MP, you were going to say something? Yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to say uh, this sounds uh, like uh, the United States of America, as a matter of fact. Uh, <laughs> that yeah is, is really ticked. And uh, if we we might have we might have one election to save ourselves, uh, but uh, may not have that. Um, you know they're doing they're doing what they can to destroy anybody that might do some good, and uh, and I mean I mean anybody. They're not just Trump. I'm talking about any anybody. Uh, 
um, they they want absolutely the worst people that they can get in Washington D.C. and it's the same thing all over the world right now. Okay, so uh, anyway, uh, uh, an interesting thought. Uh, we just happened to be reading in First Samuel this morning, and as as Saul is uh, put forth as the first king of Israel, um, he he goes through a whole kabuki dance with. Uh, 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 with uh, Samuel about no, not me. You couldn't want me. I come from the, the smallest tribe, and I'm just this little farmer guy, and this, that, and the other thing. And it's fascinating that as, as Samuel is talking to the people, and Samuel is very bitterly, bitterly disappointed, and and the Lord says to him, "Hey, Samuel, don't don't take it so hard. It's me they've rejected, not you. You know, you go ahead and do what they say. I've got a plan for this." And so he picks Saul uh, as as the first king, not to be not to belittle Saul. He does he does lots of things right. I think he has he has this uh, same kind of idea about well, what am uh, <laughs> why are you choosing me? Why me? Uh, he keeps saying why me. They go down a long list of stuff, and they say and they look for <laughs> and Samuel's going through trying to find a king, and finally he says where. Where's Saul? Oh, he's hiding. Well, go get him, you know, and they finally do all this. And the question then becomes, so why is is the, the creator of the universe picking this guy? Well, I think, number one, it, it's two, two reasons. Number one, as you uh, said, uh, MC, that God can take anything and use it to his glory. And he can take anything that's dirty and make it clean. He can all, all, all those all those things he can transmute. And he's going to take a guy that really doesn't want the job. Doesn't sound like he was the sharpest shovel in the shed either to be able to make him the first king of Israel. And and then we, we later read about him and he starts to prophesy and he starts to change and he starts to do some things right and this and that and the other thing. But ultimately, I think Yah's purpose in this is he said, hey, you guys, when under a theocracy, I look out after the poor. I fight your battles for you. I take care of you. When you're following my law, life is good. And you have very few laws. Now, if you want a king, he's going to take your men to, for armies. He's going to take your women for servants. He's going to take 10% of the best of your crops. He's going to take your fields, your orchards, your vineyards, and all that. Is that what you want? And the people say, yeah, we want a king just like everybody else. <laughs> you know, I, I I want red skates because everybody else has got red skates, right? And um, and I think he says, okay, that's what you want. Then I'll give you that. And he okay. gives him Saul. And I think Saul was kind of his way of saying, and this king is what you want? He's <laughs> he's better than I was? Uh, so I think there's a... a, a <laughs> Kind of a teaching thing going on. I think he almost has his tongue in his cheek. Uh, oh yeah, well, when, as he's when doing Yow this, to, when Yao wants to make a point, uh, you know, he's he lets us have what we want. He says, "Well, here you go. <laughs> Learn yeah. from this, you know." <laughs> and, yeah, uh, and 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 again, so so the question comes back that that at the 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 end of all this, that 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 tire ends up. Her, her, at some point in time, and maybe part of this was during the earlier part of last uh, century, 
that that you know that that uh, that he that land did come back and they they were doing some they they were doing some good things. I I, I don't know, but it just it was fascinating that again uh, Isaiah in his uh, in his oracles even the even the places being judged there's always this glimmer of hope there's always this this resolution that that if you'll only turn if you'll only do these things good will come from this you know but it, it just it, it it just pops out so fast at the end of that chapter it's it's kind of uh, kind of interesting for me yeah I, I agreed <laughs> Okay, Mark, are you ready? Yeah, absolutely. We? we are. Um, we're gonna. Uh, we're gonna finish the chapter. I hope. <laughs> oh, I'm hoping so too. I'm okay, so we too. Did, just did, didn't we? No. Uh, let's uh, see. Not me yet. Oh well. <laughs> excuse me. I I, be, I beg your pardon. <laughs> that's that's quite all right. I'll be quiet. <laughs> okay, verse twenty-three. That tire shall be forgotten. Since the prophet refers to her with an expression of degradation, with an expression comparing her to a harlot, he says, shall be forgotten, like the harlot whose lovers have forgotten her. She, too, shall be forgotten for want of merchants and traffickers turning to her because she shall be destroyed. Then we have, like the days of one king, the days of David were 70 years. But I do not know why this sign is given here. Okay? It shall fare with Tyre a slight remit. You know, that is interesting. He, uh, David had 70 years of, uh, of relatively, uh, really, really relatively good uh, time. I had as, forgotten as, that, that, that. That's Yes, that's the same time period, 70 years. You're right. Yeah. Exactly. And, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's really interesting. That, uh, that that's what they did. And, you know, 70 years is not that long a time. Uh, but anyway, uh, and then David had Shlomo, who was ar- arguably, and, and I, th- I think unarguably, the smartest guy that ever lived on this earth. Okay? Mm-hmm. He wasn't wise. He was smart. Well, he was wise, too. There's a slight <laughs> he difference. He was not wise but... at all. He did all kinds of wrong. I'm sorry, I missed that. Oh, I was going to say he was wise too. I mean, Scripture says he was wise, so I won't I won't slight him on that score. He he didn't make. It's not like he didn't make mistakes. That's the point. Well, he did make mistakes, and that's the and that's the point. Um, if he had been if he had been after Yah's heart all the way, he probably would have been uh, probably still be king. <laughs> but, yeah. But anyway. Okay, in verse 15, like the song of a harlot who sees that no one turns to her and raises a sweet and melodious voice in song, perhaps she will please her lovers. Ooh, yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. Um, in, uh, in verse 16, uh, we, have you read through 16? I read the end of the chapter. Yeah, you we've... have read the end of the chapter, okay. Yeah. Okay, so uh, like the song of a harlot, she sees that no one turns to her and raises a sweet or melodious voice and song. Perhaps she will please her lovers. Sing many songs. That is to say, also make many supplications and humble your haughtiness. And this is a this, this whole chapter is a is a lesson to Israel 
to quit being idiots. Okay? <laughs> when you come right down to it. Uh, for <coughs> again, this is the, uh, the harlot that we were talking about in verse 15. To her original state and to her wealth uh, through her commerce. He denigrates her with a degrading expression. And she shall have commerce. Literally, she shall prostitute. And she shall prostitute. She hmm. shall supply merchandise. But he denigrates her with a shameful expression. Um, this is the kind of stuff that uh, Yah does to all of us. I mean, we used one of the one of the worst professions that we could think of, or rather, the uh, beat or whoever it was that wrote this did. Um, one of the one of the worst things that that uh, we can think of, par, uh, uh, literal harlotry, um, to make this point. Yah is going to be able to take care of this harlot and bring her to himself. And that's basically what the idea is to get stuff done here. Uh, you know, we gotta we got to start following after Yah and not after what we think is cool. And that's where I'm going to put there about verse 17. Okay, so are we ready then? We've got about 10 minutes, so let's continue into chapter 24. Sure. Okay. You so, can if you want. Yep, we do. Um, because chapter 24 is kind of begun, it's going to kind of begin a sequence too. So this will be a good place to start next week because uh, some of this is also going to sound familiar. And uh, as I have mentioned and uh, others have before, um, there are uh, those that will suggest that a revelation is um, either a plagiarism or I like the term a second witness. So as we read through this, we're going to see that there are things, too, that are right. um, are familiar with what we see as other end-time prophecies, not just revelation, but um certainly uh, here as well. Behold, it says, Yahuwah makes the earth empty. And makes it waste, distorts its surface, and scatters abroad its inhabitants, and it shall be, as with the people, so with the priest, as with the servant, so with his master, as with the maid, so with the mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The land shall be utterly emptied and utterly plundered, for Yahuwah has spoken this word. So a quick comment on that one. Got a list of people here, and the uh, the bottom line seems to be it doesn't matter what the station is. They're all in the same boat, and the boat looks like it's going to be pretty much empty. The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. The haughty people of the earth languish. The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants. Now, here's where I think the rubber meets the road, and see if this doesn't sound familiar. Because they have transgressed its laws, the word there I believe is Torah, which is really instruction, changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant, therefore the curse has devoured the earth. This is right out of Deuteronomy chapter 28. And those who dwell in it are desolate. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned and few men are left. Let's let's pause there, and we'll go to you, Ray. Again, about six minutes before we get to the uh, to the end of the show for today. Um, yeah, the uh, it, it's interesting. Uh, I'm looking on my Bible software here in the English Standard Version. The little subhead at the beginning of this is judgment of the whole earth, and in one of the outline features I have, uh, this this chapter is called the Day of the Lord as we know from uh, Joel and Daniel and a few other places. Fascinating, uh, the, the commentaries that are there. 
Um, yes, this is describing exactly what we what we uh, read about in in the the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and all that. You're exactly right. Fascinating that that they use the uh, the diminutive and to the great, the people to the priest, the slave to the master, the maid to the mistress. You know, so from from the common folks to to those of great station, um, uh, the earth itself mourns and withers. Uh, interesting there, the earth lies defiled. Chanef, uh, uh, let me look at that real, uh, desecrated, corrupted, polluted, um, under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed Torah, they have violated the Chok, the statutes broken the everlasting berits. Okay, all, all words that we know that, and you're exactly right. The reason for all of this is, is what, uh, what has been done. Therefore, a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer under their guilt. I'm sorry, I'm rereading this, but it's good stuff. Uh, the inhabitants of the earth, uh, have I read too far? Yes, I've, I've read past you, Mark. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll stop right there then. Um, yeah, you can you can certainly go uh, you can certainly go back and see all the uh, the cross references to to the books that deal with uh, with the day of the Lord, and it's all right here. Okay, uh, Mark, anything you've got right. uh, a few minutes still? Yep. Behold, behold, Yah makes the land <coughs> and makes it waste. Uh, we got about five minutes. Um, a very terrible prophecy of devastation, exile, grief, and mourning contained in this chapter in verses 1 to 12 is considered by many of the commentators to refer to Israel, including the ten tribes and the people of Yehuda. Thus Rashi, on verse 1, states, This is a prophecy of retribution against Israel, because Isaiah delivered a, pro- a prophecy of consolation in the closing verses of the last chapter and in uh, verse 14 and following in this present chapter. But prior to its fulfillment, they would see great trouble. Therefore, he said to them, it is not to you that I am saying you will inherit it because Elohim will empty you out of the land. Only those of you who will be left on the day of the redemption shall raise their voices and exult as it says after the prophecy in verse 14, and it is to them that I delivered the good prophecy. Another opinion, however, mm. proposed by Radak on verses 1 and verse 5, is that the prophecy refers to the earth as a whole and to the devastation that will strike the nations at the time of the redemption of Israel. Rashi and Metzodas David likewise apply the closing prophecies of doom in verses 17 and following, to the nations. Now, they just they just popped on a couple of little things here in the further on in the in the chapter. But and it shall be as the people, so with the priest, with the servant, so with the master. In verse two, in a secure, stable society, people show respect for worthy notables. But when a whole population is taken into exile, the captor makes no distinction between the honorable and the lonely, hurting them all together indiscriminately. And you can see Rashi on verse 2, if you'd like. The Talmud point. points out the lack of respect for those of status 
had already become a feature of the life in Jerusalem prior to the destruction of the temple. Rabbi Yitzhak said, Jerusalem has only was only destroyed because small people and great people were equated with one another. That's according to Shabbos 119b. Today, things seem even worse, and small people have seized control, while the truly great are treated like the dust of the earth. Think Joe Biden. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the earth also is defiled, Hanpa, uh, under its inher- inhabitants. That's verse 5. The root here translated as defiled means to flatter and act hypocritically. The earth is said to act hypocritically when it produces weeds and empty pods instead of edible crops. This prophecy implies that when Israel and the nations defy the Torah, it generates an ecological catastrophe causing freak crops. Think about what's going on in the world today. Well, okay. <laughs> That's what's happening in the world today. MP, if I, if I may, this is where I wanted yes. to go, but we've just got about a minute left. But, yeah, what we have is a prophecy of the earth essentially being void and empty. And isn't it ironic that the very things that are being pushed by the World Economic Forum and all of the world destroyers from the Zyklon B <coughs> to the idea of carbon dioxide, which is part of Yah's cycle for renewing plant and animal life on the whole planet, they're trying to destroy all of that. So ultimately, um, what, this, what this sounds like is a place where they are allowed to do their thing and they destroy the whole earth. And uh, that's where I take a little bit of issue with exactly. the, the rabbinic commentaries because they, they tend to take it as uh, must have to do with Israel and must have to do with, with things like this. But ultimately today, if we're seeing some of these things come to pass at a, um, at a global level and truly at a biblical scale, uh, we've seen disasters before. But one that uh, the one that looks like it's that's coming exactly is exactly right. what they seem to have uh, on the the agenda. Uh, Ray, you got a minute. You want to you want to add anything before we go? Uh, I, I would just uh, I would be in agreement with you both. Uh, I think what we see here, and we're going to continue to see in, in chapter twenty four, is that uh, I think we are talking. It, it could be in the near term aimed at Israel, but I think we are talking about when it talks about biblical catastrophes. I think we're talking about things on a planetary worldwide basis uh and i think then that's the yeah. ultimate far uh, uh the far prophecy that, that happens uh is that we see things that are that are yet that are yet to yet to come that are that will be yeah. happening all over the planet and and are the, the they're well underway right now uh, absolutely right that that whole uh that whole uh ukraine russia um, All right. Well, we're at the break, guys. We'll pick it up next week in Chapter 24, and uh, a lot more on the same. Hey, thanks, folks. Thanks, guys. Shalom.